Argument first this morning in number 96-653, Kenneth Lee Baker and Stephen Robert Baker versus General Motors Corporation. Mr. Tribe. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, one judge in Michigan, without an adversary hearing, enters a consent decree as part of a stipulated monetary settlement between GM and an employee, Ron Elwell. The employee can give testimony about GM's practices that it considers damaging, but is unable to suppress in the usual manner, that is by persuading a judge that the testimony is inadmissible because of attorney-client privilege, trade secrets, and the like. The decree permanently enjoins the employee from being deposed or testifying without the consent of General Motors as a witness of any kind in state or federal litigation brought against GM anywhere by anyone, whether a private plaintiff seeking damages or a public official enforcing health and safety regulations or criminal statutes. Mr. Tribe, you refer to the Michigan proceeding as a consent decree. What precisely do you mean by that? What I mean, Mr. Chief Justice, is that there was no adversary hearing, and though consent decree is sometimes used to refer to a class action here, it was a stipulated settlement entered on the record by the judge. That's true of all settlements, isn't it, that there's no adversary hearing? Sure. We're not suggesting that there was anything unique or unusual about it. What's unusual, or at least what some people think is unusual, is that the request for a subpoena to depose the employee or to call him as a witness comes from a litigant who was not a party to and had no notice of the little proceeding that led to the quite usual entry of the decree. Well, even if Baker had had notice in Missouri, I take it your position is he wouldn't have to go to Michigan. That's certainly true, but it makes it, if anything, worse that they didn't have notice. And I take it your position would be the same if there had been an adversarial proceeding which had resulted in a consent decree. Absolutely. I make that point only because at various points in the brief by General Motors, it suggested that there were some elaborate findings that this was the only possible way of protecting privilege. Our position would be the same anyway, but I just wanted to note the fact. I thought, Mr. Tribett, you made that point to underscore that issue preclusion has no part in this case at all because nothing was ever actually litigated. That's certainly true, Justice Ginsburg. And it's in addition true that if there had been litigation, it's somewhat ironic that a determination by Judge Hathaway in Michigan that, for example, some document was privileged in a proceeding between General Motors and Elwell would obviously not be binding against the Bakers here. And yet the intriguing thing is that this decree, the injunction, has this enormous effect on them. The question is, does it matter that they weren't there? The district court thought it mattered a great deal, invoked what it called the rights of third parties at page 28A, and essentially took the position that the full... This is the district court in Missouri now. No, I'm sorry. Yes, the district court below in Missouri, Mr. Chief Justice, took the position that the full faith and credit statute should not be read to mean that a decree of this kind, and I quote him, forever defines the rights of innocent third parties who have a keen interest in the information that Elwell holds. Now, the Eighth Circuit disagreed, took the position that the whole point of the decree was to dispose of what it called these discovery rights of litigants, and to do so in all of the other lawsuits that the Michigan judge assumed would follow. Of course, if the Eighth Circuit is right, the consequences are pretty sweeping. The old maxim that the public has a right to every man's evidence will need a footnote saying, unless he has sold his silence 
to those why, why that, is that evidence why, might expose. Why, why is that? Isn't, isn't the issue just whether uh, the uh, baker, what's the, the plaintiff? The plaintiff here, the bakers, the, the, baker, the children. Who would have to go to Michigan and say, we're not bound by the Michigan decree. <laughs> of course they're not bound by it. So they'd go to Michigan and they'd say, look, we've never litigated this, and, and therefore will you please modify the decree, uh, because after all, we don't want to ask him about any privileged information. Uh, we don't want to ask him about any confidential information. Well, we want information that we have a right to. Your decree's too broad, so modify it. We, we were never parties, and they'd be totally right in that, wouldn't they? So they the issue is just where, what court they have. Well, that's one, one way of putting it. If that were the only issue, then I think this court's decision, uh, really several decisions, uh, Kreider v. Zurich, a decision of this court, holds that a local venue rule, like the one Michigan has, saying that you've got to go to the original issuing court in order to make a change in a, in a, a decree or a judgment or an injunction, uh, because that denies the full faith and credit premise of the equal competence of the courts of other states to entertain the matter, that kind of venue rule is not entitled to full faith and credit. Well, isn't another way to answer the question is to say that it, it, it's not... Uh, Baker's burden uh, to undo the injunction is GM's burden to show that Baker is bound, and it can't right. do that when Baker wasn't That's a party. Certainly right, Justice Kennedy. In That's fact, precisely Justice the issue, because you, you might come to this when you want. But I said, mm -hmm. the, the, what's worrying me is if you require the Bakers to go to Michigan, you run into the problem that Justice Kennedy raised. Why should they have to go to Michigan? Yes. All right, but if you don't require them to go to Michigan, you run into the possibility that Elwell, the Elwells of the world, i.e., those under injunctions. Uh, will get under conflicting injunctions. And then they'll really be in a mess because, in, 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 you know, you have one state telling them you have to do a thing and another state saying you can't do a thing. Well, the, that would produce a terrible a practical mess. So between those two evils, it seems well, better to send them to Michigan. Well, let me back into that, Justice Breyer. I certainly don't agree that that's better, and I also don't agree that it's a hopeless clash of evils. This very settlement took care of that. There was a side agreement that said that if he is ordered to testify, then he cannot be sanctioned. He indeed has testified against GM in some 30 trials, yeah, not this, once. This is a really important point in the case. Let's assume there's no settlement agreement. Let's just talk about conflicting in, in, injunct, injunctions. What would be the answer if there were no settlement agreement? GM says, well, uh, or, or LL says, well, I'm, I've been told one thing in one state and the other thing in the other state. And, and what's the answer to that? Well, I think the answer is that contempt requires a certain mens rea and that in that case he cannot be held in contempt for following the order of a court that appears to have competent jurisdiction. Well, doesn't the Missouri court also have the capacity to instruct GM not to enforce the injunction against Elwell in defiance of Missouri's orders? I think that's certainly right. GM has to be before the Missouri court to create the problem. In this case, the way it was indeed structured was with a side agreement that eliminated the very problem that but you But what I'm actually worried right. is not this case. But I'm worried about custody cases, antitrust cases, dozens of cases in which very complicated injunctive uh, decrees could have been entered against defendants in state one, and then grandma in Florida in a custody case, or any supplier in an antitrust case produces a different action in Florida and puts Alcoa or Swift or mummy or daddy uh, or somebody under a conflicting uh, uh, injunctive decree. And that, that's what I'm worried well, but about. I do think first there's obviously a certain wisdom in taking these one case at a time. It seems to me very clear that in a case like this, where it is just wordplay to say that this is not being used against the bakers, that they're not being bound. Of course they are. They are being deprived of the procedures that would otherwise be available to get this evidence, and the only thing that's being invoked to deprive them of it 
in a sense, a legal defense to their claim is the Michigan judgment. In that circumstance, just as in that, Martin... That's what full faith and credit always produces, some result like that. Supposing the Michigan decree hadn't involved testing, it was involved a car. And you go, to, you go to Missouri and you say, well, why should this Missouri creditor be denied resort to, resort to Missouri courts uh, over this claim to a car? Well, when, the, the answer is full faith and credit. Well, Chief Justice Rehnquist, this court in, in personam, as opposed to in rem cases, uh, where there is, in fact, a finite object and it has to be allocated, and once it is, you can't continually relitigate it, has never held that we can simply let the chips fall where they may when a judgment has been entered not over an object but over knowledge in someone's head a judgment that says we're going to say you can't testify it that is in martin v wilkes it could also have been said in response to your opinion for the court could also have been said well consent decrees often have side effects and indeed the way that that general motors tries to make this look like anything other than an easy case is to suggest that the decree is only being enforced against Mr. Elwell and that my clients are simply, were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, the way their mother was in that car. Now, that, I think, is sheer sophistry. It's not true because unlike a judgment that changes something physical, it reduces the assets available, it eliminates a job, this judgment has effect on the bakers only because it is used to preclude them from arguing to the court in Missouri that they are entitled to have Elwell's testimony. It has preclusive effect. It involves the absentee adjudication of their rights. Mr. That's Pye, what this court has never allowed. What, what uh, the, uh, we're told by your uh, colleague that this is just an incidental effect. It's like uh, creditor one sues debtor, and debtor paying that judgment wipes out debtor's fortunes. Creditor two comes along, just as good a case, tough luck. Right. And this, Justice Ginsburg, is nothing like that. A case like that shows that a judgment can be, for some people, a natural disaster. Uh, the landscape has changed, and you can't reconstruct it. The judgment in this case didn't change anything physical. It's not, for example, as though this was a judgment that Mr. Elwell did something terrible and should be executed in the state of Michigan, which would, of course, render him unavailable. The only way, just you have to ask yourself, I think, what the causal chain is. Their argument is, so what? Too bad. The judgment in, Michi in, uh, in Michigan has made this fellow essentially unavailable, just as though he were incarcerated. But, of course, then, under the federal rules, one could at least depose him. The fact is, if you ask, what's the causal chain by which he was made unavailable? He's unavailable only to the extent, and this goes back to Justice Kennedy's question, that General Motors' request to the judge in the state of Missouri that the judgment in Michigan be treated as preclusive of the rights of the litigants in Missouri who weren't there, weren't represented, weren't privies, had no notice, it's only to the extent that that request is granted. But if Elwell really is not available, then couldn't you, uh, on behalf of the Bakers, introduce Elwell's testimony from the Georgia case, where he did testify, I think, about the same defect? Well, the, the testimony about the Ivy uh, memorandum was particularly helpful here, and rather damning, I think, to General Motors. But certainly one ought not to be, it's really the, the idea that there are second-best solutions 
all build on the wrong premise that you can bind them to this decree, bind in a, a strictly technical legal sense. That is, Justice Stevens, for example, in the dissent in Martin v. Wilkes, came up with a possible way that a consent decree in a case like that might be used against the other side without really binding them. That is, it might bear on the state of mind of the person subject to the decree. It might help the employer in a Title VII case negate a claim of bad faith. No such indirect use of the decree is involved here. The decree is being brought to bear fully on the only people who are hurt by it. It's not being enforced against Mr. Elwell, who's never sanctioned. The entire structure of the situation is that General Motors obtains a settlement in which it has a chance to argue to courts around the country, you ought to prevent the plaintiffs in these cases from getting this evidence that they could otherwise get, to which they would be entitled under the federal rules. Not because you have a right to some kind of evidence in the abstract, but because you have an entitlement to use the rules in place. If, if we were to rule uh, in your favor um, and cite the full faith and credit clause, would we also have to talk about due process, or would we say that the uh, full faith and credit clause is complementary to the basic principles of the law of judgments and that uh, Baker is just not bound under uh, standard principles of the laws of judgment. So the latter, the latter, Justice Kennedy. That is, in a whole, in, in this court's precedents make clear that full faith and credit and the law of judgments and of res judicata are bound up historically and analytically. And the only reason you might want to reach... We don't have any square holding. We, we've intimated that in some of the cases, I think. Well, I, there's certainly alternative holding in... In some of the earlier cases before the 1970s, when the court began positivizing procedural due process, uh, there were cases, a fair number of them, uh, (coughs) including Hansbury v. Lee and and others, in which the language of the court is that it has been a principle since time immemorial that people are not bound by judgments in proceedings that they don't have a chance to participate in. Occasionally, the phrase full faith and credit has entered those opinions. But that has been axiomatic throughout. You only reach procedural due process if you think that Congress, for some reason, in Section 1738, departed from that normal understanding of full faith and credit and the law of judgments, in which case we argue that it would have been a deprivation of property in the form of an entitlement to invoke the procedural rules, much like Logan v. Zimmerman, without due process, even considering... Excuse me, the property involved here is the right to invoke the procedural rules? Yes. As in... I thought the the property was your your cause of action. Well, there are two. There's a state-created property, Justice Souter, the tort cause of action, and a second state-created property interest in the the Missouri-created separate cause of action for damages for aggravated action. It's a kind of punitive damage. I don't think you'll find much disposition on the court court to enlarge on Logan against Zimmerman. I don't have any uh, desire to urge the court to enlarge on Logan. I I think you'd have to, to rely on it the way you said you did. Well, with respect to the federally created entitlement to invoke the rules, uh, I don't think... The key point is we're not talking, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, about some takings argument. We're only talking about the fact that when the rules provide a clear right to obtain or to seek to obtain a subpoena or a deposition, then that is enough of an entitlement so that it would not be constitutional for a court to say, well, we'll decide that by a flip of the coin. Would you say that it's liberty or property, or do you have to... I don't think one has to choose, but it could, it, could be, it could be either, but I do want to... have to be one? Well, I think it is both. 
Does, it would have it to, has to be one, doesn't it? It certainly has to be one of the three, and it's not life. But it doesn't really, in this case, have to be any of the three, because full faith and credit doesn't extend in this way. Uh, doesn't extend in this way to judgments that were rendered in a proceeding that one was an utter stranger to. I mean, whatever you think of the practical problems that Justice Breyer is discussing, I think you can rule out as one of the possible solutions, a solution that says, well, the grandmother in his hypothetical, or the children in mine, will simply have to be bound by a judgment in another jurisdiction. That can't be right. Now, if you say, Justice Breyer, well, I'm not saying they're bound, I'm just saying they have to travel to Michigan to seek relief. Justice Brandeis, in the uh, Chase National Bank case in 1934, essentially was addressing that problem when he said that you should have a right to stay at home, mind your business, and know that your rights and won't be affected Bob, by a judgment. You, uh, in a what what, what, surprised, what right. surprised me in this, maybe you can just suggest something I could read. It seems to me in 200 years of history, it must have come up before that state A enters an injunction against Smith and a person in a different state who wasn't a party and isn't bound would either have to go to the first state to get it modified or could sue in his own state and would discover that that person whom the injunction was aimed at could be made subject to conflicting injunctive orders. Well, I'm amazed that there isn't something written that's absolutely clear explaining what? that it's either the one way or the other way. Justice Breyer, I hate to disappoint you, but I have not found anything that is clear enough that it would bear on a, an injunction remotely like this one. Um, well, but then you see, maybe your injunction is not like what I'm saying. But what's bothering me is the instance that I'm saying yes, for I other injunctions. So is there something you could point me to that would say why yeah. it's better to have the possibility of conflicting injunctions than to require the plaintiff to travel to the state where he's not bound and get the money? The other party can travel. That is, I don't understand why General Motors, given its vehicular mobility, couldn't just go back to Michigan and ask for some kind of relief. Mr. Tribe, I thought when you were concentrating on preclusion principles rather than due process personal right, that what you were talking about is one state's right to dictate the rules of admissibility of evidence in another state. And full faith and credit is about relations to the, between the states in the National Union more than it is about personal rights of individuals. And here is a question of the allocation of authority between Michigan right. and Missouri. If I, if I might, Justice Ginsburg, simply jump to that for a moment, because it seems to me that's a very important feature of the case that I'm not sure is as thoroughly explicated in the brief as, as, as it might be. And that is the following. Set aside for a moment the question of whether under normal principles of preclusion these children who were strangers to the proceeding could be bound. I think the answer to that is clearly no. Secondly, I think it's clear they're being bound. But the point you make is the one that intrigues me most in a way, and that is the whole premise of full faith and credit in a federal union like ours is a premise of mutual respect, the premise that says a state is not to assume that the courts of another state just can't do justice as well as its courts can. And indeed, that premise pervades our system. The Anti-Injunction Act and the Younger Doctrine means the federal courts can't presume inadequacy on the part of the state courts. And this court's decisions in Donovan v. Dallas and General Atomic indicate, too, that a state court cannot tell litigants, even litigants in its courts, 
that they may not invoke certain procedures in a federal court. In General Atomic, it wasn't even an anti-suit injunction. They were being told that they could not use Rule 14 as an impleader. This case is a classic example of that. Essentially, if the Eighth Circuit's use of the decree from Michigan is affirmed, it will follow that the courts of a state can not only make decisions that will have race judicata and preclusive and sometimes collateral estoppel effects substantively in the courts of another state, it will follow that the courts of a state can control who can be called as a witness, who can be deposed, what evidence can be introduced in another state or in the federal courts. That, it seems to me, is impermissible. I mean, decisions... But, but uh, you know, this is troublesome because Michigan isn't telling Missouri what to do. Missouri can allow uh, Elwell to be called to the stand, and Elwell can say, but I can't testify to this. I decline to answer. So... Uh, Missouri isn't being deprived of the no, Missouri, process. Honor, well, Missouri is being told plenty that plenty of times witnesses uh, have some privilege that can be asserted so that uh, the bakers wouldn't be entitled to certain uh, testimony. They can call the witness to the stand. The witness says, sorry, uh, I'm here, but uh, this is privileged information. But if it's, if it's privileged because of some background rule, like the Fifth Amendment privilege, that's one thing. But if a state can create this kind of special witness protection program under which it can decide which witnesses it would be utterly futile to call in the courts of uh, the, in the federal courts, despite their own independent interest in the administration of justice, that would be an interpenetration. Do we know how uh, other courts in Michigan would treat this injunction? Has it been tested in another suit against uh, GM in Michigan? For there, are, there are several cases, Justice O'Connor, in which judges have washed their hands of it and have said, under our venue rules, go to Judge Hathaway. Even though it was the same court in Michigan, they treated the venue rule as a kind of rule of personality. And Judge Hathaway apparently has sort of washed his hands of it and has said, I put the injunction in place. So that it appears to be... A... Mr. Tribe, can I ask you a question about your understanding of the meaning of the injunction? There's some difference between the side agreement that says we won't seek contempt charges if you testify and the text of the injunction itself. Do you agree that the injunction in effect says to the, uh, this witness, uh, if you are subpoenaed to testify or ordered by a court in another state to testify, you shall not comply with that order? He... Tr- the answer is yes. I think it probably means that, but it's ambiguous and the record doesn't well, resolve the ambiguity. It, if it means that, do you concede or do you dispute that the Michigan court would have the power to enter such an order? I dispute that the Michigan court has the power to enter an order that directly tells someone to defy, to, to defy the order of another jurisdiction. Well, well then if you're case. right on that, the, the, the order would not be entitled to full faith and credit under elementary jurisdictional principles. I think but that's you don't right seem to make well. that argument. Well, we, we make it indirect, indirectly in the point that I was elaborating uh, to Justice Ginsburg. That is, if it is true that the courts of the United States and of the various states are not authorized to put people in this circumstance and, in effect, to make inroads in the internal operation of the systems of other states and of the federal government, then this order is completely void, independent of the non-party status of the bakers. So you want to have some kind of a standard to say that you can't interfere with the vital or important interest well, of the sister state? Uh, is that no, it's not quite as big as that, Justice Kennedy. I think, as in Prince, 
uh, and in New York, this is a case that, uh, that I think, though there are much easier ways to decide it under normal uh, principles of judgments, I think it's possible to say. Well, what, well what, I mean, what is the standard? Excuse me. That the internal operations of the judicial systems of each state uh, cannot be manipulated or commandeered by the judgments of other states. But I don't myself suggest that a case that can be disposed of as simply as this one because of the Baker's non-party status should be the vehicle either for exploring the puzzles that Justice Breyer raises or for adopting this add-on to Prince. What if the Michigan court had, had litigated uh, the issue of privilege as uh, between Elwell and General Motors yes. and had concluded that uh, information about subject X was privileged and made that determination and then said, and you can't disclose that, Mr. Elwell, anywhere, anytime. Uh, is that entitled to full faith and credit when Elwell is called in as a witness in another jurisdiction? I think as between Elwell and GM, yes, although the bakers or others like them are not bound by that determination under standard principles of preclusion. That is no. I mean, your answer is no well, in the context of this It depends of whether there is a non-party who, whom one is seeking to bind. The only point at which the one state is commandeering the process of the other, I take it, is the point at which the second state simply will not hear the third party. The, state, the second state says, I don't care what you tell me. There is a decree, full faith and credit, that's the end of the issue. That's the point at which it commandeers, isn't it? I think, Justice Souter, yes, and that's what the Eighth Circuit is basically telling the courts of Missouri to do. But I think I perhaps should reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Tribe. Uh, Mr. Capuccio, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are two reasons why there cannot possibly be a due process objection to the application of full faith and credit here. And Justice Breyer, your question raised one of those grounds, and Justice Kennedy, you picked up on it. I'm going to try to answer both of you. And Mr. Chief Justice, you raised the other ground. And, the, and that probably the simplest reason is that ultimately, by the application of full faith and credit here, we are just talking about what court will decide whether or not, in this case, Elwell be, will be allowed to testify. That's the application of full faith and credit. And that's the application of full faith and credit, as far as I know, in all the history of that clause, this court has never even said that full faith and credit is owed to a decree ordering a person to do an act. Indeed, wasn't it entirely clear under the regime that existed until the 30s, under the first restatement of conflicts, that a granting or denying, and I'm reading you from the first restatement, section 449, granting or denying equitable relief other than an order to pay money is a matter of discretion, and the decision of one court to give specific relief will not limit another court and thus exclude the use of discretion by the second court. That was talking even as between the two parties to the first judgment. And here you're saying, oh, but we can enforce an order to act, not only as to the party who was ordered to act, which this court has never said comes within full faith and credit, but to, uh, against a stranger. Now, that is really asking this court to take a giant step. Uh, Your Honor, I respectfully uh, disagree, and I don't think it is. I think the restatement is flatly wrong in what it said. Uh, uh, this court has never denied full faith and credit to equitable decrees. And there is no basis 
for distinguishing... Uh, just give me one citation where this court has said state two must compel X to do an act simply because state one compelled X to do an act. Well, I can, I can give you a custody decree, for example, will require someone to have or not have the child. A, a uh, 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 Cole versus Cunningham, which is an anti-suit case, which went very far. All that Cole against Cunningham said was that state one can issue an anti-suit injunction. It did not say that state two had to pay that injunction any mind. But, Your Honor, there is no basis in either the language of Section 1738 or any policy of full faith and credit to treat an injunction or an affirmative injunction as opposed to a prohibitory one any different. They are both judicial proceedings. I'm simply asking you, has there ever been such a case in the history of the United States? Custody is the status, child custody. Those decrees are modifiable. Um, I am not aware. I, I am aware of some, as you no doubt know, the land cases fall against Easton, cloth against cloth. Say even the very actor that was told to convey a piece of property in state one doesn't have to do it if he's in state two, and that's where the property is. Well, I'm not sure that's the holding of Fall versus Easton. Actually, the problem in that case was that the court tried to affect title to land directly. But I think in that case, the husband could be directed to convey the land. And I think well, the concurrence in that case... Well, I'm, just, I'm simply making the point that you were asking this court to make a ruling that it has never made. You may be right that it should. Uh, You're right. You may be right that the restatement was wrong and that those cases were wrong. But it is something very novel you're asking us to do. Your Honor, two answers to that. Fall versus Easton is actually an example for me because I think it was Justice Holmes in his concurrence thought it was quite plain that the order requiring the husband to convey the land was entitled to full faith and credit. And second, we cite a number of lower court cases in our brief, uh, including from the Seventh Circuit, that, that established that this is a fairly well-settled issue, that full faith and credit is entitled to injunctions, both prohibitory injunctions and affirmative injunctions. But in all events, the, the other problem is that you're trying to make this applicable to Baker, and Baker is simply not bound. Now, if, if, if GM uh, finds in, itself in the position of Elwell testifying, uh, and it tries to hold uh, Elwell in contempt back in Michigan, uh, would Elwell have a, a defense uh, on, on some sort of due process ground, do you think, that uh, he was ordered to do what uh, the, Michigan, the Missouri court told him to do uh, because uh, due process concerns and full faith and credit con concerns simply did not allow the injunction to be enforced? No, sir. He would be in contempt of the injunction. But I understand the problem here, and the problem here is to, is, to, is to, one, ask what sort of effect is this having on third parties, and is that effect so great as to violate due process, or does it leave them with a way to defend their rights in a manner that is consistent with due process? I, I'm not sure that we have to address it in the due process context, and frankly, I hope we don't have to. Can't we just ask whether this is required by the full faith and credit clause? Why well, do we have to pin it on some due process? Well, Your Honor, because the application of full faith and credit is fairly straightforward here, and this picks up on another question you've had. The full faith and credit statute says that the Michigan injunction is entitled to the very same force and effect that it would have within the state of Michigan. That's common ground. The Michigan courts, we have, we're fortunate in this case, have interpreted the force and effect of this very injunction. And the case that we cite in the red brief is the Brisbois case. And what second courts 
who people have gone to have said is that the force and effect that this injunction is due is that Ron Elwell is prohibited from testifying unless and until somebody goes back and presents their claim to the Wayne County, Michigan court to allow him to but testify. But those, those people were all within the jurisdiction of the Michigan courts, were they not? They were, and I... Uh, and but that's I, different, because uh, <coughs> bakers are not. Well, Your Honor, it is, it is different from, on the due process question. I agree with you. It is not different. But as Justice O'Connor was indicating, it seems to me it's also different because of the fundamental law of judgments, which is that you can't uh, um, apply the judgment or enforce a judgment against a person uh, against uh, where there was no personal jurisdiction over that person originally. Well, that it's just a simple personal jurisdiction. That that sort of raises the question as to whether these people are being bound by the judgment rather than being affected by the judgment. Uh, and, and in some incidental way. But I think that bound debate, which the court has had in, in Martin versus Wilkes, is just a proxy for the due process analysis. The question... Mr. Capuccio, it isn't in this respect. You know, you gave the credit of one, credit of two, and I follow that. Credit of two comes too late, and it's just an incidental effect. But here, the whole purpose of this injunction was to control litigation, not in Michigan, but elsewhere. The whole purpose was to say, in effect, Michigan rules the world. It determines what evidence will be admissible in courts all across the country, although, and I think you'll agree with me that to this extent the restatement of conflicts is right, each state applies its own rules to determine the admissibility of evidence. So here is Michigan, in effect, preempting the ordinary operation of the rules of evidence of all the courts in the country. Your, and I've never seen any degree, decree quite like that. Your Honor, this is just Michigan deciding something between Ron Elwell and General Motors and preventing Elwell from hurting General Motors. What makes this apply elsewhere is the full faith and credit clause, nothing that the Michigan court did. And what that says is we have decided as a nation, because someone can step over the line and hurt General Motors just as well in another state, that, the, that, that that judgment is enforceable everywhere. Mr. Capuccio, why, why isn't it the case that we say, in accordance with the restatement rule, that um, the full faith and credit clause does not bind uh, bakers who were not privy to that proceeding in Michigan, and that General Motors' remedy is to go after Elwell uh, for contempt in Michigan? Because, Your Honor, if he uh, agrees to, in fact, testify. Because, Your Honor, what the full faith and credit clause requires, again, is that the Michigan injunction be given the same force and effect. And at a minimum, Do you I have any authority that the record. Michigan courts say that their judgments bind persons who were not before the court and over whom the court had no personal jurisdiction? I'm sorry, Your Honor, they do not say that. The Michigan courts... Well, then it doesn't have the effect that you seek to give it here. No, I'm sorry, Your Honor. The Michigan courts cases simply say that someone who is affected by the judgment and seeks to reopen it or seeks to modify it or challenge it must go back to the court that rendered it. It is merely a litigation channeling provision. If they're already in Michigan. Well, but by the, that's right, Your Honor, because that rule is just for Michigan, but by operation, this is the most important point, by operation of the full faith and credit clause, that Michigan rule applies to govern this judgment. Mr. Caputo, would you tell me how Michigan has the power to drag somebody in Alaska, in Hawaii, and say, you can't, uh, you, plaintiff, you can't choose your own forum. You have to come to Michigan to litigate. 
the, the scene that I get from what Michigan, what you are attempting to extract from this Michigan judgment is, in effect, Michigan rules the world. Like the old story about Tobago rules the world, only now it's Michigan is going to decide what evidence comes in all over. I understand that, and I lay that at the feet of the U.S. Congress, and they were wise to have done that. That is what Section 1738 does. But, Mr. Kabuki, may I ask this question? Sure. It only does it if the Michigan court had the power to enter the order it did enter. You would agree with that much, I assume? Uh, jurisdiction over the person subject matter, yes, sir. And would you, would you think there is any question at all about the power of a, a Michigan court to order a litigant before it to refuse to comply with any normally lawful court order that might be entered in anywhere else in the country. Does that bother you at all? I'm just looking, I'm not looking about third parties, I'm looking just at Elwell. You are saying to him, in your reading of the injunction, as I understand it, it in effect says, no matter how lawful the court order may be that directs you to testify, you must refuse on pain of contempt. I agree. He would be in contempt if he did. And, and, and you think it's perfectly clear that there's no jurisdictional issue as to the power of a court to enter such an order that is required to full, uh, must be given full I can't imagine credit. what the jurisdictional issue would be. The court had jurisdiction over the persons, and the court had jurisdiction over the subject matter. And they, they, and they entered an injunction that prevents Elwell from testifying against General Motors. What makes it extraterritorial in its effect well, is the full faith and credit. Well, as, as between Elwell and General Motors, I suppose... The, 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 uh, it's a settlement. If it had been contested, he could have appealed through the Michigan courts, but he can't collaterally attack the decree just that's, because it, it, may, it may be improper. That's right, Your Honor. That's absolutely right. And, and that's an important distinction here, which is separating the difference between whether this injunction is overbroad, which I'm not asking this court to decide. I'm not trying to stifle debate as to whether this injunction, by covering evidence that might not be privileged, is overbroad, and whether it's You're saying any claim that an injunction is overbroad in this sense must be litigated in the court entering the injunction. Absolutely, sir. Uh, Justice may, Stevens. May I propose a variant on Justice Stevens' question? Let's assume we're simply talking about proceedings in Michigan. In the make it, as I understand your characterization of what the Michigan court has already said, it is that it may bind a, 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 an individual who was not party to the original litigation between Elwell and GM as to the opportunity of that third party to seek the normal process of any Michigan court. As I understand it, you are saying that Michigan says, no, you may not, third party, now plaintiff in a new case against GM, go into the normal, uh, whatever would be the normal venue in Michigan, uh, and say, I want this evidence. You are bound by an earlier decree to which you were not party to come into a different court and raise a different issue, which is, should I be bound by a decree between these two other uh, individuals? Isn't that uh, the predicate for a due process issue? Your Honor, no, because I disagree with your use of the word bind there, because the question is, what sort of impact does it have on the third party? You would, I, I assume that the court would agree that if it were a merely incidental impact, there'd be no due process problem at all. So the first question you have to ask is, what is the degree of the impact? Does it foreclose a property right, which is the question the Chief Justice asked? And then second, what process are you given? And I'm saying there is no due process objection either to the Michigan rule or to the application of full faith and credit, or I may add, to what Congress has mandated, which is the exact same thing, 
in the 1991 Civil Rights Act in the wake of Martin versus Wilkes. Petitioners in their brief cite the statute that was passed in the wake of Martin versus Wilkes. And what Congress requires is exactly the same sort of channeling of third-party collateral, it's not collateral tax, third-party challenges to consent decrees back to the court that issued it. Petitioners raised it. Allow me to read the rule. First of all, Congress precludes certain third parties from raising challenges if they had notice, if they were adequately represented. But they recognize that there might be new third parties who came along later who weren't... It was real third parties. Real third parties. People who were not, in fact, substantially represented the first time. Absolutely, Your Honor. And Congress says uh, in in that section, which is section uh, uh, 2000... um, 2000... Do you have it here? It's 28 U.S.C. 2000 E-2N. I have the actual bill. Any action not precluded under this section, meaning real third parties, that challenges an employment consent judgment or order described in paragraph one shall be brought in the court and, if possible, before the judge that entered such judgment or order. And my position is the constitutionality here of the effect of full faith and credit is indistinguishable from the constitutionality of this provision by Congress, which is plainly constitutional because all it does is require parties to go back to the court that issued it. And then the question is yours, Justice Let me interrupt you again, if I just might. Supposing the order, they found out he had a lot of documents that he had in his summer home in Wisconsin, and they were under subpoena. And the judge in Michigan said, I want you to burn those documents to protect General Motors from the unlawful access to those documents. And there was an order in in Wisconsin that he can't. He could only get relief from that in in Michigan, I guess. You'd have to go burn the documents. That order would be entitled... Well, it depends Would if there were a prior to, final order. Such an order would be entitled to full faith and credit, even though you have jurisdiction of the person and the subject matter. And it would be entitled to full faith and credit, and it would be reversed in a split second, Your Honor, because it would be an abusive Why would that be order. reversed any more than this one? They might claim they were privileged documents. Well, but that will be reviewed, and that's the point. It is, not that, it is not that the Michigan court has done something that nobody can review. There are at least two opportunities to review. There's an opportunity for direct review when it's entered, but okay. just talking about the party to it, the, this is a consent decree. The parties are not going to litigate anything. We're talking about the effect in another forum, on that forum, and the normal operation of its courts, and someone who is a non-party and can't be required to go anyplace. I, I asked you, I started out asking you about the old restatement, and you corrected me by saying that's flatly wrong. But the current restatement has this interpretation it's entitled Limitations on Full Faith and Credit, not about due process. It says, a judgment rendered in one state need not be recognized or enforced in a sister state if such recognition or enforcement is not required by the national policy of full faith and credit because it would involve an improper interference with important interests of the sister state. Here, the important business being determining for itself what evidence is admissible. And the cites to that proposition are dissents and dicta, and concurrence is not essential to holding. And I commend to you, Justice Ginsburg, two law review articles, one written by a man named William William Reynolds in the Maryland Law Review, and one written by a man named Ron uh, Hecker, I think it is, Hecker, uh, in the California Law Review. And you will see that there is absolutely no support for the rather inaptly called restatement on that point. Because, in fact, all you of those cases... You can call for that one way or another. And I can say to you, you will see that there is no decision of this court saying State 2 enforces X to do an act simply because State 1 did. I mean, I, you may be right that we should sure. do that, but there, I could say there is no authority for it and be right. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right, Your Honor, but I come from just the opposite, which is I start with 1738, which says they are all enforceable unless there is a reason to not make them enforceable. And this Court has never, ever recognized in any single case an exception based either upon the policy interests of the forum court, the worded somewhat differently, institutional integrity of the forum court, <laughs> or the nature of the decree, whether it's legal or injunctive. And I am saying... Well, didn't Fauntleroy against Lund say there wasn't any public <coughs> policy exception? Absolutely, Mr. Chief Justice. And my position is, in order to rule for petitioners in this case, you would be effectively overruling Fauntleroy versus Lund, because in that Fauntleroy case... Fauntleroy was a question of uh, a judgment, a litigated judgment, and a determination had been made. And then in state two, a party to that judgment wanted to look behind it. And that's a no-no. And that's well established. Here we're not talking about Elmwell. We're talking about Bakers. We, we are, Your Honor. But I think the point that the Chief Justice was making with Fauntleroy is that this court has never recognized that the effect on the policy forum is to be balanced against the final judgment. And what I am saying is petitioner's formulation of the exception they're looking for, which is to interfere or commandeer the judicial process, is merely a reformulation of the policy interest in Fauntleroy. Certainly the Supreme Court of Mississippi would feel that it was being commandeered in its institutional that integrity. Whether the question is going to the merits of the holding rather than the power to enter the decree. Excuse me, Your Honor? But that reasoning went to the merits of the decision rather than the power to enter the judgment. That's correct. And they, that distinction is very clear in Fauntleroy. And the question I keep coming back to is the question of, is there no limit on the, on the power to enter any kind of judgment whatsoever other than personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction? Um, I agree, just difference in policy. But here you're asking them to, to say you must disobey an order that every jurisdiction in the country would normally say is a valid order when you subpoena somebody to testify. And you're saying this decree says we don't care how universal the approval is of such lawful orders, you must disobey it. Two answers to that. First, the decree is not saying to disobey an order. There was no order in place. It is Well, but the decree does say you, you don't have to interfere with the jurisdiction of the Georgia court, but presumably that means that any other court's jurisdiction must be interfered with. That's in the decree itself. It means only that Ron Elwell cannot testify, and the effect of the full faith and credit clause is to extend that extraterritorially. And the question is whether that impairs the jurisdiction of any of these other courts, which the decree seems to assume it would. Well, it would, affect their, it would affect their ability to have one witness come in. I don't think it would impair their jurisdiction, but I do not Mr. see... Mr. Kuchel, may I ask you, in reference to Fort Leroy against Lum, there was a later decision uh, by Justice Stone. It was at Pacific Employers, and I'll just read you what he said some years after Fort Leroy against Lum. Perhaps he was wrong, too. It has often been recognized by this court that there are some limitations upon the extent to which a state may be required by the full faith and credit clause to enforce even the judgment of another state in contravention of its own policy. Uh, there is plainly some broad statements, particularly by Justice Stone, who dissented originally in Yarborough and threw some dicta in later. That makes it wasn't it in a dissenting opinion. No, I understand it was in a majority opinion, but in that case, it was absolutely unnecessary to the holding because that case was a choice of law case. And, of course, this court has held precisely because Congress has not litigated the effect of acts and because there's a necessity to yes, balance... But this sentence judgment. was about judgment, so you, you say that was wrong. It, it is, Your Honor, one of the quotes that the, that the restatement relies on, and I am saying that if, if the proverbial, as Justice Scalia said once in his opinion, hapless law clerk 
goes back to those cases. In none of those cases does the court hold that there is an exception to judgments when, when the interests of the other state need to be weighed. There are let statements. Just, let me just clarify one thing, because you didn't quite finish your answer when Justice It is your position, I'm just not looking at authorities or law review articles or restatement, it is your position that there is no full faith and credit limitation whatsoever other than personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction in the court entering the judgment. Yes, Your Honor, that's it. Well, Mr. Cappuccio, by way of another example, sometimes we see uh, court orders ordering um, a, an employee or a former employee uh, not to compete with the employer in situations where the employee and the first employer get in a dispute and go to court and there is a covenant not to compete and that's enforced by a court order in, let's say, Michigan. And the Michigan court says, Mr. X, you will not compete for a period of five years with this employer number one. And any contract you enter into anywhere to do that is void and of no effect. Employee goes to state two and enters into a contract with a new employer to go to work in competition in violation. Now, um, I guess on your theory, um, that contract is unenforceable in the second state in any way for the employer, the new employer who tries to hire him. Absolutely, Your Honor. And, and that first judgment... Add, add to the fact that, that it was not litigated so that there's no, no you know, res judicata effect. It was a consent decree in the first suit. Yes, sir. And my answer... still say that the second... My answer is, is that it is preposterous to think that the, the person who is affected, the person who wants to enter into the contract, mm -hmm. could go into the court of the second state and say, ignore the judgment. Rather, they would have to go back to the first court and show that they had the kind of interest... It was effective. Gee, I would have thought that in the second state, the new employer could sue the employee who uh, entered into this contract, uh, perhaps when he shouldn't have, and that the first employer could sue him for breaching the original order. I mean, what? what? No, Your, Your Honor, I think in that case, the, <coughs> the suit in the second case, the first, the first order would plainly be entitled to full faith and credit. And if somebody wants to go back, and claim that that is wrong, be it a party or a third party, they have to go back to the original court. That's all full faith and credit. But what, what, what is the authority for that? That is, let me go to exactly the same question I asked Professor Trott. In Justice O'Connor's case, you have a third person who was not party to the first action, who wants the services of the employee. We agree that that third person is not bound. And you agree that the bakers here are not bound. Moreover, if the bakers have a claim to this evidence, and it sounds as if they do, there's no doubt they get it, they will get this evidence. Only question is whether they have to go back to, to uh, uh, Michigan. Well, similarly, what's the authority? In 200 years, there's never been a case that says that either this employer in the second state, i.e. the third party, that says either of course the second state has to follow the injunction of the first against the employee, not the employer. So go to the, go to the first state and get it modified. Or it says the opposite. And there's never been a law review article that explores that question deeply. I mean, uh, what I'm looking for is the case or the law review article in 200 years that went into what I think was the most simple, basic question under injunctions and the full faith and credit clause. You should read mine. What well, is it? 
Your, your Honor, there are two questions. Let me try to answer the first one and then the second one. The, the, first, the answer to the first one is, it does not matter whether you say they are bound or not bound. That is a legal conclusion about what due process requires. What matters is the degree of impact on it. Does it affect a property right? And I agree with the Chief Justice. You're not going to expect, I hope you won't extend Logan versus Zimmerman. They don't have a property right here that disposes of this case. But even if it does, what process are they entitled to? And the only question is, is it too much of a burden to send them back to Michigan, and I'm ah, saying no. Right. That's a very revealing word. They never were there in the first okay. place. Uh, sorry. You whether it's too much of a brief, you talk about whether must return to Michigan, and now twice you said go back to Michigan. Uh, Michigan has no power over uh, them. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't have said back, but this is the whole issue in this case. Is it too much of a burden? Does it violate due process? And I'm saying no, because of the important interest of full faith and credit to avoid conflicting judgments, as, as, as Justice Breyer So Michigan can about. rule the world to that extent. The full it faith can require anybody from any place, even though Michigan would have no power over them, by having a judgment, a plaintiff against defendant, third party, wherever she may be, will have to go to that one place, to litigate. It sounds very strange. It's exactly what Congress did in the Civil Rights Act in 1991. It's exactly what Congress did by reason of the full faith and credit clause. And the burden, Justice Kennedy, is not an undue burden. It's the same exact burden that a litigant faces when they want to get an out-of-state witness. I suppose, Mr. Capuccio, that I, I also, it was the exact example that Justice O'Connor gave, which, uh, which has occurred to me, these uh, injunctions against competition are very, very common. Mm -hmm. And I guess they're not worth a whole lot if they're, if they're only enforceable in the particular, in the particular state. Your Honor, uh, I, I, I would have expected a lot of literature on the other side. I would have expected a lot of lawsuits in, in, in which people simply said, I don't have to obey this injunction in the other state because nope. your writ doesn't run this far. I would think that it would be the reason we don't have anything is because it is so plain that that is a final judgment entitled to full faith and credit. Thank you, Mr. Capuccio. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Tribe, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me begin by saying that the power of Congress in response to Martin v. Wilkes to have a national venue provision has nothing to do with the power of a state to say, come back to Michigan though you've never been here. Uh, Congress was not acting in connection with full faith and credit. What Congress was doing was exactly analogous to Michigan's in-state rule saying venue is in the court that did it in the first place. Mr. Trapp, I, I don't understand one thing about your, your position. Is it your position not only that, the, that courts in states other than Michigan are not bound by the judgment, but that also if he complies with the, uh, uh, with the uh, decrees of these other courts, that Mr. Elwood is not liable for contempt in Michigan? No, Justice Scalia, if third parties are effectively bound, that's my problem. No, no. I'm not saying that General Motors could not have arranged to have sanctions imposed on him as he travels around the country if he testifies in response to the uh, in response to orders that would be a matter of contract between general motors and this employee no no not by contract may the michigan court cite him for contempt if he complies with the order of the court of another state and gives testimony i think not mr scalia yeah, that that's your right. position not only that that's the right that the state court is not bound, but also that Elwood is not bound. Uh, in all likelihood, though, I do... Well, and what is the principle? Why, why can't he be cited for contempt? What, what's the principle? The, the principle is that, as a matter of due process, one cannot be held in contempt for refusing to comply with the order of a court. One but he could be held in contempt if he acquiesced, couldn't he? You can waive your rights, certainly, Justice Souter. No, but I mean, if... if, 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 if 
if, if he voluntarily testifies, oh, yeah, or if that, his sure, objection that, is then a sham, no, then, then of course no they can problem. go after or, it. Or if he goes to that state in order to be subpoenaed, which is what happened here, apparently. There's no evidence in the record of what, of that. And All right, well, let's, 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 hy- don't even let's, let's hy- hypothesize it then. Suppose he goes to that state expecting and hoping yeah, the... I, I would think if you have such a case, he could be in contempt. Okay. The opposition to cert didn't suggest you're, you're not yes. suggesting that it wouldn't be just between those two parties perfectly all right for General Motors to say, if you are indeed subpoenaed by somebody right. and you can't help it, but don't walk into a place that would otherwise have no power over you. I think that's right, and I'm afraid my, my time is up. Thank you. The case is submitted.